0: Before we begin today's episode, here are a few words from our generous sponsor, Nefcure Kidney International.
1: We hear it all the time. Know your risk for disease. Stay on top of your health. But what about your kidney health? Did you know people of Asian descent are at higher risk for kidney disease? Or that nine out of 10 people with kidney disease don't even know they have it? Get Kidney Curious with Nefcure. NefCure provides tools to help you stay on top of your kidney health, including a short, simple quiz to determine your risk, access to expert kidney doctors, and tips on kidney nutrition. Learn more at nephcure.org.
0: Hello, hello, and welcome to Asian Women for Health's podcast, From Resilience to Radiance. I'm Audrey Peck, your host, here to amplify the voices and lived experiences of Asian women as they raise the volume on important and often underreported health issues impacting our communities. We hope their insights along their health journeys will serve as a source of inspiration and empowerment for you. Today, I'm delighted to welcome our special guest. Sabrina Chow, who is joining us from New York City. She's an avid nonfiction writer and journalist who has a combined gift and flair for creative writing. She's currently pursuing her MFA at Columbia University where she teaches creative nonfiction. And if I were still a student, you bet I would be in the front row of her class. Sabrina's reporting often focuses on subcultures. While her personal writing explores patient and feminist identity within Asian culture. Today, she'll be drawing from her own experiences to share with us her health journey with minimal change disease, or MCD, a kidney disorder that can lead to nephrotic syndrome. Welcome,
1: Sabrina. Hi, Audrey. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here and to chat
0: with you today. Let's start by learning a bit more about your background. Uh, I understand you're a daughter of two Chinese immigrants, yes?
1: Yeah, I am. Um, So my father is from Shanghai originally, and my mother is from Beijing. Uh, I was born in Pennsylvania, a quiet suburb. And I grew up, you know, in Montgomery County, very quiet area right outside of Philadelphia, 45 minutes away. Um, And, you know, I I think that my culture in general has always been really important to me, though, obviously, at different times in my life, uh, I felt... Um, I felt different things towards it. Um, And I'm right now I'm being Chinese is a big part of who I am honoring that, honoring the histories of that. And it's a big part of what informs my work. Um, When I was 17, I was diagnosed with minimal change disease. And it was up until then, my life had been pretty, eh, I mean, nothing really bad had happened to me, honestly. And I had grown up very privileged in a lot of ways. I'd gone to private school, you know, I'd had, my parents had really invested in my education. And then one day I was 17 and I woke up that morning and I fell over and it really was that quick. You know, if I press upon that period of my life, there were a lot of signs, but when you're 17, I do think, and you haven't had health problems before, you just, you don't think that this can happen to you. Um, and, you know, by nightfall, I was in the emergency room at the Children's Hospital of Pennsylvania, and I was being diagnosed with this, the way that they presented it was, it was this chronic autoimmune kidney disease. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, when I thought about diseases at 17, it was, I thought about infections, you know, I thought about things that you took antibiotics, or you took X, Y, and Z medication, and then you got better. Um, And it was really, I stayed in the hospital for three days and I had to get a biopsy. And it was really disorienting to learn the extent of what having a condition like this could mean. Because it's true that sometimes you can maybe just have one incidence of this illness and then you'll go into remission and you won't deal with it ever again. That's, you know, that's rare, but it happens. But it's also true that when you have an autoimmune disease, you basically have a lifetime where on one hand, your body with with an autoimmune disease is, it's actually attacking itself. And you will have sometimes these cycles where you go into remission, you get better, and then you have a flare and you're sick again. And it can be really chaotic and it's hard to plan around. So I spent probably from 17 to 18, really that year was just about Convalescing. It was doctors and medications. And, you know, why can't I sustain a remission? At the same time, I was trying to apply for college. And it was a question of, well, am I even going to be able to finish off this senior year of high school? Um, and now I'm 25 and I have been in remission, I want to say
0: seven years now. Yeah, I think around yes. seven years. Any symptoms prior to your diagnosis? I was
1: extremely tired. A few weeks before my diagnosis, but I will also say I was in a period of my life where it was just before the early decision deadline for college, and I was really not sleeping. I was like sleeping maybe three hours a night, so it was not clear to me that that I was more tired than what I would have been anyways. I was not. I was swelling. I was swelling intensely at the time of my diagnosis. I had twenty pounds of just straight water weight on me, and. Mm-hmm that is the one symptom where whenever people hear that they just are really in shock that I did not notice. But, you know, I think at 17, I was also going through a lot of body dysmorphia issues. And I just, like didn't like the way I looked anyway. So I was not often looking at myself in the mirror one, two, I felt like if I felt like I was uh, feeling off or, or heavier or anything, it was not something that I wanted to acknowledge anyways. Um, and, and three, the swelling was concentrated in my legs mainly, and it happened during fall. So I was wearing, um, I was wearing jeans or I was wearing leggings and it was not as, you know, you couldn't see it during the day. I just felt like my pants were always really tight.
0: Mm-hmm. As a teenager, body image, I and mean, maybe even as an adult, um, it's, it's something that is constantly on women's minds. That must have been a lot of, of pressure and stress for you.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that it just felt like Murphy's Law in a way (laughs) at that period of time because I wanted, you know, education was always so important in my family. And my mother in particular really wanted me to go to, we had like a list of schools that were like my top schools. And so much of my high school career had just been about getting the right metrics to go to, you know, this school or that school. And suddenly to have all of these, really pressing concerns or what felt like pressing concerns in my life displaced by something that was on some extreme level like life or death that was very disorienting um Mm -hmm. and i also felt i felt a certain amount of shame and this is where my uh my experience as a patient intersects my culture i felt a lot of shame over how i potentially had contributed to my illness in the sense that I knew I was extremely stressed out for a lot of my high school career. I knew that I was not sleeping enough. I knew that I, you know, I, at a period of time I was like putting caffeine patches on my body because I really, I had to stay up that extra hour to study for this exam or whatever. Um, and the way that we talk about medicine um, in Eastern philosophy often, it's a lot about looking at, okay, well, diseases develop because of an imbalance in different forces in our body, right? Or because of an imbalance in energy. Um, And a lot of how we talk about treating diseases in that culture also is about resting and eliminating stress and and kind of balancing these different elements um, in our, in our constitution. So I really felt like at a point that stressing myself out in this way, I had done this irrevocable damage to my body. And, you know, you look at it scientifically, there's a huge genetic component to this disease. Um, Mm. And also the way that I was, my, um, the ideology of my disease, it was determined that it was, is idiopathic. So they did not know for certain how it happened, but it seems very likely that there was a genetic component. And then I had caught an opportunistic infection. Um, I was sick. A week or so before I was, I ended up in the hospital, I caught this really bad bug of some sort, and it was likely that that infection made my body just go haywire and it triggered an autoimmune response that became dysfunctional. And so my cells started
0: attacking my own body. Oh my. Well, I'm grateful that you're in remission now, but you know, I mean, kidney disease is very prevalent among Asians. And, um, but I don't think people often talk about it. Even in your own family, can you speak to how your diagnosis impacted the way you relate to your family members? They are battling their own health issues or uh, friends and community.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think that's such a good question. Um, I think that when I was first diagnosed, I felt a lot of shame. And this was, I, you know, this, there was a multi-dimensionality to the shame on one hand. It was, you know, how I contributed to my disease, et cetera. On the other hand, it was that the disease had certain physical presenting symptoms. One of which was the swelling, which can kind of, you know, distort your appearance. But the first line treatment for pretty much for a majority of autoimmune diseases is steroids. So they're going to use steroids to tamp down your um, immune response. The problem with steroids is it can lead to a lot of um, side effects and a, a host of physical side effects, some of which I think can be quite disfiguring. Um, patients are known patients on long term stereotherapy are known to to gain a lot of weight, for instance. Um, but also it gives you something called moon face, where you get this very swollen look on your face that can make it seem like you would also gain a lot of weight. You can get something on the back of your neck called a buffalo hump, which is a fatty deposit. But I, I felt, you know, I felt like a freak for a long time. And it made me not want to be around people because I felt like they could just see this disease written all over me and that I had somehow be- become defunct. Um, with my parents, it was difficult because I knew they were trying very, very hard but I feel like I also grew up in a family where they really did not want to baby me emotionally and they didn't want to coddle me. And so a lot of it was like, okay, well, this happened. You have to take care of yourself, but I mean, you have to move on with your life. You have to accept that this happened. You have to accept that this is what it's going to be like. Um, And you, you have to, you have to just grow from this and roll the punches. Um, And I think looking Back now, that was important for me, and it definitely helped in gaining a later acceptance. But at this time, it felt really alienating because I think the worst thing about this disease was, to be honest, I wasn't in a ton of physical pain. Um, it wasn't like my kidneys hurt or anything. I, I everything that was going on was sort of quiet. It was affecting my labs. It was affecting you know uh, things like when urine output stuff like that because the kidneys are the filtration system of the body. Right. But I felt a lot of emotional pain, honestly. I felt very alienated. Um, I felt very, I felt like a freak. I felt like I was never going to get better and having to come to terms with what was the rest of my life going to look like. Um, I didn't want to be around people. There's a certain point where I stopped leaving my house and I think I honestly was borderline agoraphobic. I I had just a lot of, I think, emotional stress that I did not feel like was addressed. And that was something that even with my doctors, all of whom I'm, you know, I'm grateful for and immensely indebted to in so many ways. I just felt like that was not something that was discussed or that I didn't really have the resources for that. Um, In terms of community, one of the things that made the trajectory of my disease bit bearable was when I got more involved in patient communities, Um, you know, looking at inspire pages, they do a lot of different um, support groups, online support groups, so just the communities and, you know, different messaging boards for patients with a certain disease. Um, Nefcure, when I got involved with them, I think that, you know, they do a lot of advocacy for uh, nephrotic syndrome specifically. They focus on that and it's a rare disease, you know, so it doesn't have a lot of advocacy in general Um, and they have, patient stories, but they also have events for patients and they will connect you to um, basically like a support uh, body or someone who's gone through this disease, I can kind of talk to you about options. That was so important. Um, But also just later on finding other young women who had autoimmune diseases, um, even if it wasn't my disease and speaking about the you know, the commonalities between our experiences. And that made me feel so much less alone. And I think that is why I so believe in the power of narrative and testimony and that I so believe it can be uh,
0: absolutely a form of um, advocacy. But it sounds like you found your way. Um, And NefCure is actually how we got connected. So (laughs) I am extremely grateful that um, you were able to get involved with the NefCure community and in addition to being an advocate um, around this health issue, have you also participated in any clinical trials or studies? Yeah,
1: actually, that was how I got connected to my current um, nephrologist, Dr. Lawrence Holtzman, who works at uh, the University of Pennsylvania Hospital System. And he is, he's amazing. I mean, I always tell him whenever I see him, I'm gonna dedicate my first book to you. <laughs> <laughs> And I really, I really mean that, but he is, I, th- I think he's the lead investigator, um, but he had a study called it's called, um, CRIC, and it is basically a longitudinal study looking at the quality of life metrics of patients with kidney disease. Uh, specifically, I think it's, um, nephrotic syndrome. I got involved when I was 18 and newly diagnosed, and I've been part of that study. I'm still part of it now. Um, And I think they just got more funding. So it's going to continue, but that study is so important. And I'm really excited and heartened to see that there are studies like this going on because it will help address the question of, well, how are we going to improve standard of care and standard of living for patients with a disease that is rare enough that there's just not enough advocacy and not enough understanding. Um, One of the things that I've always felt so you know, I think I feel a lot of conflicting emotions about this because I feel immense gratitude that I lived in a city where I had access, you know, I lived in Philadelphia, which has a very high proportion of hospitals and um, health professionals. And I had access to care that was state of the art, that was very up to date. So when I, even when I went to my primary care physician in my local, um, in, in my town, they, she knew immediately what, this disease was. And, you know, she was the one who got me to the emergency room, but there are people where if you're living in a more rural area specifically where there's not a ton of nephrologists, but there's, there's just less um, health literacy in general. And I've heard from other patients like this, they, they can go months without getting diagnosed because it's mm-hmm. just, it's just, they don't know what this disease is, or it's, it's not, you know, it's not common enough. So that and that delaying your treatment when you have a disease that you know, can be cumulative and, and that does exist on a scale of destruction, that can be really, really damaging. So I feel like, you know, I have so much gratitude and a profound appreciation for the researchers that are studying diseases like this, you know, quote unquote, uh, rare diseases.
0: It's important that you brought up sort of the disproportionate access to care. With regard to your own advocacy in the Asian community, do you find that the language barrier continues to be a hindrance for people to receive the care they need? Oh, absolutely.
1: I mean, and we are talking about this from both a, from both the side of, you know, what kind of implicit biases some people hold from the, from the idea that you know, if you go into a, a healthcare setting and you don't speak perfect English or you speak with an accent, people sometimes will form these often illogical conclusions about your education, um, about, you know, your your intelligence and all of these different things. So there's there's that, there's implicit bias portion of this, but also in general, I mean, there's this other, I think in some ways like more neutral and valence problem, which is just that, if you go into a healthcare setting and you do not understand what the provider is telling you, you could be missing out on essential information to your to your health. You know, to your well being. Um, and that, you know, sometimes maybe it doesn't matter as much, but sometimes that can be seriously damaging. Um, I I did some reporting on a piece about how language barriers lead to health inequities, and it was you know, it was heartbreaking and, and tragic to hear these stories about a lot of times it's the children of, of immigrants who have to take on the role, no matter their what their age is, of going into these healthcare settings and having to hear information. Sometimes it can be really devastating information about their parents and having to translate for them and to feel responsible for making sure that that standard of care can be reached. Um, you know, technically speaking, all hospitals should have Translate um, translators available or should be able to get one for patients who request it. But, you know, a lot of times in practice that that just doesn't happen. And that can, I think, be extremely damaging. It's way underlooked.
0: Exactly. On a personal note, are you multilingual? And are you able to communicate with your parents on these health matters in their language?
1: Yeah, so I do speak um, Mandarin. And I, uh, you know, my Mandarin is, is, you know, rustier than it used to be. Um, I lived in China for (laughs) years at one point when I was younger. And, you know, back then I was was quite good, but my father is a patient himself and he has a host of cardiovascular and renal um, and pulmonary issues. And so when he got sick, um, I, I was pretty involved, especially in terms of translating um translating in hospital settings and doctor settings uh, translating a medical ease you know you get these thick documents and having to learn how to interpret um, interpret mri results or different you know scans or looking at post-appointment notes um and on some level not even just the translation liaising with pharmaceutical companies um trying to get them appointments um, or, or having to talk consistently to his insurance company about, okay, well, why was this denied? Or why won't you cover this? And having to advocate for him on that level. It really was Go a ahead. big part of my life when he first got ill.
0: Yes, the insurance system and navigating the, mm-hmm. the healthcare system is is very complicated here in the US. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure it's he appreciates he, um, you being on by his side.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's something that I felt... I mean, it felt even more than responsibility, like it was a duty. Um, And, you know, maybe that can be tied back to a lot of the Confucian standards of my culture. But what I will say is, even for someone like me, where, you know, English, I I feel very fluent in it. And, you know, I'm a writer, I would consider even there's a certain mastery of the language for me or what I aspire towards. Even someone like me who has all the resources and the education to be able to navigate the system, it was still disorienting in a lot of ways, I think disorienting purposefully, you know, and then to have other patients who do not have that who do not have the language skills to have to try to even um, navigate that I mean you can see obviously why there are serious health inequities in this.
0: Um, let's talk a little bit about your passion for writing, because mm-hmm. it seems to be at the heart of who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, how did your passion for writing initially involve? You studied at University of Pennsylvania, um, and I like the combination of both you know, fact-based journalism and creative writing. So if you could speak to that.
1: I always wanted to be a writer. And that is so cliche. And when you read essays about writers they're like, why are I? And that's the first sentence you're like, Oh God. (laughs) But (laughs) it, it really, it never felt much like a choice for me because writing is so much of how I process the world and how I see the world. You know, I, I think that, if anything, one of the things that I feel a lot of almost embarrassment over is the fact that I'm just never as articulate in person as I can be on the page. Um, writing is truly, one of my mentors said to me, I mean, your writing is, is how you reveal who you are. And I, I believe that to be true. Um, I, as a child, I loved, I loved stories. I, you know, I was a voracious reader and I was, I was quite lonely. I'm an only child. So I think I just spent a lot of time in my own head and then creating stories as well. I was writing from a young age, you know, little poems or, or a little make-believe whatever. And I just, stories were so fascinating to me because of how, how both, one point they could be ambiguous and open-ended but that they could be super honest as well and i think that is is one of the foundations of how i approach writing even now i'm really fascinated by the complexities of stories and by Mm -hmm. how constantly they can surprise us and they can subvert expectations um, and the artistry of that but on a very real level i think that i really believe in this idea of testimony which comes if i'm correct from the The Latin word "testis," which is about, um, which is, which means to witness, and I think you Mm -hmm. know when you tell a story, often it's about it's about sharing something with an audience. You know, it's about revealing something about X, Y, and Z to an audience um, and having them bear witness to that. And so that's one of the main reasons, as I write as well, that influences my journalism, but that also influences my personal essays. You know, We talk a lot in the field of memoir and personal essays. It's not just about the I, it's about how I can shed light on some universal feeling or how talking about the I can help connect other people who have felt that that emotion or that experience. Um, In some ways it's the I that's always trying to transcend the I. (laughs)
0: And I think you're a beautiful writer. I have found your reporting on on subcultures especially intriguing. I mean, I think you're like on a, from my view, I I think you're like on a a cultural quest as both uh, an investigator, right? Mm -hmm. Um, The reporter side, but um, a creative storyteller as like you said, you bear witness to changing societal norms. So you've written some truly compelling pieces um, around women, immigrants, youth. How do you go about choosing your topics or do they somehow find their way to you? Oh, that's, I love this question. Um, because, so
1: I, I think that I'm somebody who is really always quite curious about the world and, and quite adventurous in that sense. Um, a lot of my, the topics that I choose or things that I have for whatever reason just gotten involved in. Um, this one of the next pieces that I have coming out is actually about when I was part of this. Um, I'd gone, i wanted to write about East Asian beauty standards and I had been part of this beauty pageant. I went like <laughs> undercover to go write about this. and. Uh-huh. It was like miscongeniality as contestant number six, but I—that was a piece <laughs> that really surprised me because I came in with a bias where I was like, "Why would anyone do this?" You know, you—why would anyone subject themselves to this? Especially, I think one of the things that I had always felt most prickly about in East Asian culture was how we talk about weight and this idea of staying petite for women. Um, but. Also, the people that I met in that pageant, a lot of my co contestants really surprised me and impressed me. And the piece ended up, in a lot of ways, being about, you know, this changing idea of feminism and representation in Chinese culture and the parameters of that, the limitations, but also the ways in which how a lot of women were using their femininity as a source of power. So, you know, that's all just to say. A lot of times, it's just different things that I've gotten, you know, I'm interested in a topic and then I go find an event or kind of a phenomenon that I feel like will illustrate that. And then I, I go and join it myself. <laughs> I am guess more like gonzo style. <laughs> I think one of my best sources I talk to when I'm out and about, um, I, I talk to a lot of different people. I'm very open to Conversing, and through that, I found a lot of really fascinating things. And I sort of keep a running list on my phone of, of different things that I think are interesting, and if I can go follow them. And and then sometimes the pieces just start falling in place. I have a topic, I have my interest in it, and then I find an event where I think, oh, I can go attend this and see if it'll prove my sort of uh, developing hypothesis.
0: I know you're also working on a, a manuscript um, mm-hmm. about the Chinese Cultural Revolution. Uh, Mm -hmm. Can you tell us more about that?
1: Yeah, I'd love to. Um, So I've been working on this for a long time now, but it is my thesis for graduate school. Um, And, you know, I always say that it's what the Chinese Cultural Revolution is, but I, I do think that's probably a reductive way of putting it because it's, in a lot of ways, it's about my attempts to connect with my father and my relationship with my father and my father lived through the Chinese Cultural Revolution, Um, but specifically he was part of what is called the the Rustication Movement. And that was when Mao decreed that all educated, privileged urban youth had to be sent away, really exiled to the countryside or the mountain tops in order to shed their bourgeoisie and intellectual ideals through hard labor. So, You know, there was a lot of variances in how these they were technically labor farms, but there were a lot of variances in how brutal these places could be. So there were some that were, I think, honestly, just straight up labor camps and you had these these children. I mean, these were high school aged kids working 12 to 16 hours a day of hard labor. tilling the fields, you know, going to harvest rice. Um, and my father did that for, I believe, four years. Um, and so a big chunk, at 17, he was When I, the age that I got sick it was the age that my father got sent away. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first half of the manuscript is really all about my attempts to try to understand this period of his life because it's not, it's something that I, I definitely heard a lot about growing up in the sense that it was something that my father would bring up a lot. It was sort of like his story of like, okay, well, I, you know, I used to walk seven miles in the snow to get to school. You know, this is before school bus. That was sort of the way that he had told me the story as a way in which to try to put my life into perspective. But also the older that I got and the, the more curious it became, it became obvious to me that this was something that clearly had affected him very deeply, but that he either did not have the the language to try to convey it or or felt deeply uncomfortable about revisiting that period of his life of what was probably an incredibly painful, uh, not just physically taxing part of his life. Um, So the book really is is all about my dad. It's also about his his illness and watching him get ill and and trying to caretake uh, for him after he got ill um, and knowing what I knew about illness as a patient myself, and it's about all the things that all are failures in that way, but I think at its core, this book is very much an attempt for me to understand and to connect with my father, and I always say that I wrote this for children of the Chinese diaspora, I'm writing this for children of the Chinese diaspora, because I think it, I think it's common to feel in my culture a little bit of estrangement, from our parents, from the idea that they have not only all that they've given us and this, the, the immigrant story of, you know, hard work and, and living through a lot of, of cruelty sometimes and a lot of, um, you, you know, a lot of, of, of poverty and of sweat and toil in order to give to your children the life you never have. But also the idea that my father lived through something where you know, regardless of how much research I do, regardless of how much, you know, how many interviews or te- uh, I read or memoirs I read from period to that period, I would just from pe- um, how many memoirs I read from people of that period of movement, I would just never fully be able to understand that what he went through.
0: That is, is such a, an a amazing journey you're embarking on. And at what point was he really willing to share all of this openly with you? The first time I
1: really thought about, because originally the piece was just about, originally how I conceptualized the memoir was just about writing about uh, loving a patient as a patient. You know, it was really very focused to the patient lens. And I became convinced that I could not tell the story and I could not do it justice unless I really fleshed out my father more. Uh, because I think a lot of his reactions later when he got sick and a lot of the ways in which he dealt with, with it were absolutely, um, behaviors formed out of what he had gone through and how he had learned to, uh, to accept suffering and accept a lot of the injustices in the world. Um, so I, I, I was pretty upfront in that. I was like, dad, I want to write about, I want to write about, um, the time when you were rusticated because I think it is taught very poorly in the American canon frankly It was something where I remember being in high school and you know you had these like immense immersive units on the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution these like thick textbooks and when we learned about the Chinese Cultural Revolution I remember we got a textbook that was the it was like so slim <laughs> It was paperback and it was so slim and it was like 200 pages at most trying to talk about this incredibly rich part of history, a mm-hmm. contemporary history really. I mean, the people that grew up during the revolution are, are our contemporaries. Um, and the Rustication movement was not that long ago. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was my original pitch. I was like, I feel, I mean, I think it's crazy that most people just don't know that much about the Chinese Cultural revolution um, if you grew up in America and you went to the America, American um, education system, and especially about rustication, I mean, that is a really unknown event to a lot of people.
0: Yeah, the power of the story. We have to keep mm-hmm. sharing, sharing our narratives, you know, and I wanted to ask, what does resilience mean to you?
1: Honestly, resilience to me means having faith in yourself, and I mean faith in the very secular sense, but having faith in your ability to get up and keep going. You know, you hear a lot about resilience, about grit, about all these different things, and they sort of all kind of meld together at a certain point. But yeah, I really do believe that resilience is a lot about the relationship that you have to yourself. I mean, do you believe that you have the ability to surmount this challenge? Do you believe that you have the ability to keep going? Do you believe that you have the ability to, you know, perhaps even not only survive X, Y, and Z, but grow from that um, and continue to tackle even bigger challenges. Yeah, that's what resilience is to me.
0: Before we wrap up, I'd love to ask you a few rapid fire questions just for fun, if you could indulge. So which do you prefer, ebook, audio book, or printed book? Mm, Printed book, definitely. If you could travel back in time, what period would you go to?
1: (laughs) This is a great one. I I think, you know what? Honestly, I was just thinking this. I think I would go back to the 90s. And this is just for selfish reasons. Like, (laughs) first of all, I really liked like the 90s music. I could totally go with that again. And I would not mind being like I was born in 97, right? So Mm. I wouldn't mind being like four again, (laughs) I think that would be for a couple of weeks. I I wouldn't mind having no responsibilities and doing that all over again. (laughs) That's a first, that's a first.
0: Okay. (laughs) Your
1: favorite self-care ritual. Oh, Oh, you know what? I am a huge new face fiend every day. I use that the new face and it shoots basically electrical currents into your face. And the idea is the muscles there. I
0: use it 20 minutes, like
1: every morning it's part of my morning uh,
0: routine. As a writer, what's on the top of your must-read list?
1: Oh, I love this question. And I'm going to give a shout out to um, Leslie Jameson, who is one of my actual professors right now. And um, her her essay collection, The Empathy Exams, I return to it all the time. I mean, Leslie is truly a genius, but that first, the titular essay, The Empathy Exams, is an amazing, amazing piece of writing. And I think everyone should read it. I send it to, I send it to everyone, actually, (laughs) like I'm
0: out here doing the advocacy for it. This has been fun, Sabrina. I'm so grateful we could learn from you uh, about MCD and to have this opportunity to hear about your personal journey. We so appreciate you and I hope you'll stay curious and we look forward to reading your future writings uh out there in the world
1: So thank you so much for
0: having me Audrey it was
1: amazing getting to spend time with you and to talk about all of this it was wonderful you had some amazing questions
0: and you'll have to come back sometime too definitely if you'd like to learn more about Sabrina I encourage you to check out her website and follow her socials as well as her resource links which will drop in with her bio And if you like what you've heard in this episode, be sure to visit our podcast page on the asianwomenforhealth.org website, where you can tune into this and any of our earlier episodes on your preferred podcast platform. We also encourage you to check out Asian Women for Health's schedule of monthly socials, health webinars, and virtual programs. Please make the most of these learning opportunities and share widely. Until next time. Keep shining because the world needs you.